evidence and answers. When you think of heaven, do you envision angels flying on clouds, playing harps? Peter standing at the pearly gates? Lines of people waiting to get in? Heaven is a real place, and we are given details in the scriptures about it. But for some, the thought of heaven may be more of something seen in a Hollywood film. You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zugrin. Pat is a popular teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Each week, Pat and his friends provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ. This week, we will continue on with part two of a message Dr. Ron Rhodes started the last time we were together entitled, The Wonder of Heaven, taken from our recent Hawaii Apologetics Conference. Each year, Pat hosts this conference, which features some of the premier Christian scholars and apologists from around this nation. Our theme was Evidence of Life Beyond the Grave and featured noted Christian scholars, Dr. Gary Habermas and Dr. Ron Rhodes. Now let's conclude this encouraging message. Here's Dr. Ron Rhodes. There is a good reason to have a good sense of wonder and awe. You know, there's not going to be any more curse, only perfect restoration. The throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, perfect proximity to God. God's servants shall serve him, perfect expenditure of time. God's name will be on our foreheads, perfect identification. There should be no night there, for the Lord gives them light. Perfect illumination. They shall reign forever and ever and ever with Christ. Perfect exaltation. That's why I ask, what could be better? Now, heaven is not only in something that involves all things perfect. It involves all things new. And let me tell you what I mean by that. As a contrast, consider Mount Rushmore. This is a great accomplishment of man, but the thing is decaying. Cracks have developed, and there had to be a lot of workmen go up there and fix the nose and other parts of the body up there. And, uh, you know, everything that humans touch eventually breaks down and dissolves, right? I mean, no matter how glorious it may seem at first, everything falls apart that human beings have a part of. In any event, by contrast to the stuff that's decaying on earth, the new heavens and the new earth is where we're going to exist for all eternity. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth, God says in Isaiah 65, 17. And then in Revelation 21.1, we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now, I need to tell you that words can have different meanings in different contexts. I, I talked about this last hour. For example, the word trunk can mean the front of an elephant or the back of the car or the bottom of a tree. You know, different contexts will tell you what the word means. The word heaven is the same way. The word heaven can mean different things in different contexts. It can refer to the first heaven, which is the earth's atmosphere, the second heaven is outer space with all the galaxies and stars out there. And then, of course, the third heaven is God's dwelling place. And that's where the Apostle Paul was caught up, according to 2 Corinthians 12. That's my personal take on Scripture, that only the first and second heavens will be made new. That's the physical universe that's decaying and the entire the stars and the galaxies and all of that. The earth was cursed back in Genesis when Adam and Eve sinned. And we're told that the creation was subject to futility, Romans 8.20. So our universe is running down, but it's going to be made new again. God's going to renew it. God's heaven, by contrast, is untouched by sin. It's already perfect. But once the first and second heavens are renewed, that is to say, once the earth and its atmosphere and space is renewed, many believe there's going to be a broader meaning of heaven and that the term heaven will come to embrace the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, which is the eternal city. And it will be an awesome thing, an awesome thing to behold. 
Now here's an artist's rendition of the New Jerusalem. Whether it looks like that, I'm not sure. Some people have suggested it looks like a big cube, kind of like the Holy of Holies. Some people have suggested a pyramid. But one thing is sure, it has streets, it has lots of rooms, lots of residences, and there appear to be many activities there. Now I believe that Christ is the builder of the New Jerusalem. Why do I say that? Well, I say that because of John 14, verses 1 to 3. In John 14, Jesus tells his followers, Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. He's telling them that he's going to go prepare a place in his father's house for them to live. And now we're seeing in Revelation that this is the place where we're going to live. And therefore we can infer that the place that Jesus was referring to is in fact in New Jerusalem. I've got to tell you folks, you ought to be impressed about what Jesus can do. If you go outside at night and you look straight up and you see thousands of stars, guess who created it? The Lord Jesus Christ. He created everything. John 1.3, Colossians 1.16, 1 Corinthians 8.6, Revelation 3.14, and other passages. He's an awesome creator. So you can count on the fact that the place you're going to live for all eternity is truly awesome. That's pretty big. It is said here to measure 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. Whether or not that's literal is beside the point. It's big. It's real, real big. And there's a lot of people that can live in it. What makes the city special is the fact that God will be there. We will be face to face with our God there. And Revelation speaks of the New Jerusalem this way. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. I can't wait. I can't wait. It's also called a better country. Heaven is not only just a city, but it's a better country. And what a glorious country it is. You know, one of the best descriptions I came across of this was by the Bible expositor John Gill who contemplates how the heavenly country is, and I quote, full of light and glory, having the delightful breezes of divine love and the comfortable gales of the blessed spirit. Many are the liberties and privileges here enjoyed. Here is a freedom from a body subject to disease and death, from a body of sin and death, from Satan's temptations, from all doubts and fears and unbelief, and from all sorrows and afflictions. And he goes on and on. It just gets better and better. You see, that's the heavenly country that you and I are headed for. Now, heaven involves not just all things perfect and all things new, but all things wonderful. And I'm talking about the blessings of heaven. You know, back in uh, biblical days, mourning was a big time thing. In fact, it was a big show. There was a lot of loud weeping and wailing. There were ashes that were put on heads. People tore their clothes and walked barefoot and they shaved their beards off. They even hired professional mourners. How would you like to be uh, a professional mourner? You'd show up at some funeral and the people that were mourning them would say, go over there, stand over there and start mourning. So they'd go over there and they'd just start wailing. And they would wail up to a full week. Then they'd get their paycheck. See, how would you like to earn your money doing that? Anyway, it was really a big show. But in heaven, Christ will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. It's all gone. Now some of you might wonder, how can we not shed tears regarding loved ones who may not be in heaven? That's a question I'm often asked. If we're not going to have any tears, then what about our memories of lost loved ones? Isaiah 65 may hold some clue to that. I'm not absolutely sure, but it may. Behold, God says, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. I do think that we have to understand that we will have our positive memories with us. There's other verses that talk about that. It's entirely possible that God may take those negative memories away. Wonderful sin. Uh, I got sin banished and there's only holiness there. I was doing the uh, Janet Parshall show. For those of you who don't know, Janet's husband is a lawyer. Now in heaven, there's not going to be any cops or lawyers. Okay? 
No offense to anybody out there. No cops or lawyers. No doctors and dentists either. You know what? We're going to have perfect bodies. But I told Janet that if her husband was ever distraught up in heaven, he could always come over to my mansion because there's going to be plenty to do. Okay? So anyway, the fact is, is that heaven's going to be a holy city. No sin's going to be there. Only the pure of heart will dwell there. But you know what? You don't got to come up with your own purity. Jesus did it for us. Those of us who have trusted in Christ have been made pure forever. Just check out the book of Romans on that. In heaven, we're also going to have wonderful rest. We're going to rest from our labors. In fact, uh, Revelation 14, 13 says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor. No more deadlines. Boy, is that good news. No more overtime. Just rest. And as the Puritan writer Richard Baxter put it, this rest will be absolutely perfect. We shall then have joy without sorrow and rest without weariness. I don't think we can even get a grip on what that rest is going to be like in heaven. We're also going to have blessed activities. Now, folks, we are not going to be playing harps on clouds. I don't know about you, but that would be more like hell to me. Okay? <laughs> if I was up in heaven sitting on a cloud going, bring, bring, bring. Oh, that would get old real quick. We're not going to be doing that. We're going to be involved in meaningful but restful service throughout eternity. It's not going to be tedious but joyous. It's going to be without frustration, without fear of failure, without limitations, and without exhaustion. I also think that we're going to have some praise and worship services not to be missed. Some of you were at my session last hour, and I asked people about what 10,000 times 10,000 is. Some of you know the answer. For those of you here last hour, don't tell the answer. So let me ask the rest of you. Anybody know what 10,000 times 10,000 is? It's not 20,000. Okay? It's 100 million. The redeemed Christians of all time will join over 100 million angels praising Christ. What an awesome service that's going to be. I also think we're going to spend time learning more about our incomparable God for all eternity. We haven't touched on anything yet. I mean, God is so awesome and so wonderful. But we will spend eternity learning about him. We will also have a perfect relationship with God. You know, in times past, God made his presence known in a number of different ways, like the burning bush and the the pillar of cloud and so forth. But in heaven, we'll be with him face to face. And that face to face fellowship is really the essence of heavenly living. We'll also have perfect relationships with our Christian loved ones. How do we know we'll be reunited? Well, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and told them that the dead in Christ would rise first, and then we who are living would be caught up to meet them in the air. This is a reunion. Now, whether it's your parents who have died or maybe a child that has died, a spouse that has died, we're going to have a reunion that will never end with our Christian loved ones. And it's going to be something that will be the most awesome thing you can imagine. Will we recognize each other? Absolutely. You know, this reunion promise in 1 Thessalonians wouldn't be a real reunion unless you could recognize each other. We also see that the rich man and Lazarus in the afterlife all recognize each other and talk to each other. David knew he would be reunited with his deceased son in heaven, 2 Samuel 12, 23. Yes, absolutely, we will recognize each other in heaven. Also, our relationships will be unhindered by sin. No more crosswords, no more misunderstandings, no more neglect shown to people, no rivalries, no jealousies, no competing for someone's love, and no selfishness. How good is that? And my friends, really quickly... Let me just touch on some frequently asked questions about all of this. I've only got a few minutes uh, left, really about 10 minutes, so I'm going to kind of fly through this. But let's just see how much we can cover real quick. First of all, where is heaven located? Well, I've got a map right in my wallet, right here. 
Uh, no, I don't. Actually, there's a lot of opinions on some of this stuff. We know for sure that it's a real place and it's the place of departed spirits. It's where God's throne is and it's where Jesus went when he died and it's where paradise is and it's the third heaven. We know that much. Beyond that, some people think it's somewhere in the space-time universe far, far away, maybe shrouded in a cloud of God's glory. They don't really have a verse for that, but they suggest that maybe somewhere far, far away, that's where heaven is. Other people say that it might be in the north of our universe, and they base that on Job 37.22, which says, Out of the north, God comes in golden splendor. God comes in awesome majesty. Now, other people point out that maybe that reference to north just has more of a reference to up as opposed to down. So we can't be dogmatic on that. Still others suggest an entirely different dimension. You know, there's a verse in Mark 10.10 that speaks of Jesus' baptism down at the bottom of this slide here. And it says that as Jesus was coming up out of the water, John the Baptist saw heaven being torn open or ripped open in the sky and the spirit descending on him like a dove. It's almost like the sky just rips open and the spirit comes down. So some people surmise from this that maybe heaven is another dimension. We can't be dogmatic. We can't say for sure, but it's going to be awesome. Who are the occupants of heaven? Well, real quickly, the triune God is there. Scripture says that each of the three persons of the Trinity are there. The good angels are there. I've already talked about that. And redeemed humans are there as well. A great multitude that no one could count. Now let me mention to you, for those of you who weren't here last hour, Anybody who wants a full copy of this presentation in PDF form, Adobe Acrobat, you email me, and I'll email it right back to you. That's roncroads at gmail.com. roncroads at gmail.com. All right, another question. Is there time in heaven? Some say no. How can there be time if we have eternal life and live in an an, uh, eternal environment? When we die, we leave time and enter into eternity, and heaven is the abode of God, and God is eternal. So some people say no, there's no time in heaven. However, other people say yes. Book of Revelation says we're going to sing in heaven. Songs have a beginning and an end. They have a beat. You can click along with it or tap your foot. See? So there's time in heaven. In Revelation 6, 9, and 10, the Christian martyrs in heaven ask, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth? There seems to be some recognition of time there. God's people are said to serve him day and night. The opening of the seven seals and the other judgments are sequential. There is silence in heaven for half an hour. Revelation 22.2 says that the tree of life yields fruit every month. Those who reside in heaven rejoice whenever a sinner repents. And so a lot of people think that maybe in some sense there will be time. How is the new Jerusalem different from other cities? I got asked this just not long ago. Let me just put it this way. Ancient earthly cities get dark, but the new Jerusalem is always lighted. There is rampant disease in earthly cities, but there is no sickness in heaven. Healing leaves are on the tree of life. Ancient earthly cities can be parched with too little water, but there is an endless river of life in the new Jerusalem. Ancient cities have shortages of different kinds, but in the new Jerusalem, there is an abundance of all things good. In ancient cities, there's a lot of death. In the new Jerusalem, there is no death. I wonder if I was to take a poll today how many people have lost an infant or a young child or perhaps even a miscarriage. I believe I have two children in heaven. They miscarried young. You know, they were about halfway through the pregnancy and then they died. And I think I'm going to meet them at the rapture of the church. I I got a, a reason for saying that. 
I believe that at the moment that the infant dies, the benefits of Jesus' death on the cross are applied to that little baby. And at that moment, the infant becomes saved. And I think that this is not just in keeping with God's love, but his holiness as well. Scripture reveals Jesus' great love for children and said that to such belongs the kingdom of God. King David knew he would see his infant again, 2 Samuel 12, 22. In not a single verse of scripture is any young child or infant portrayed as being at the great white throne judgment. In not a single scripture is an infant or child ever portrayed as being in hell. And so I'm very, very convinced that young children who die go straight to heaven. Will they look like infants, though? Will they look like infants throughout all eternity? I'm not sure uh, how many people are wondering about that. I don't have a verse for you, but I don't think that they're going to look like infants anymore. I say that because heaven is a place of maturity and perfection. So it seems to me that it befits the nature of God for those who did not have the opportunity of maturity to attain it in heaven. So that's just my personal opinion without really having a scripture verse to back it up. Will everyone be equally rewarded in heaven? No, I don't think so. We're going to all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Some of us are going to fare pretty well. Others of us not so well. One thing is for sure. We're going to all be glad to be in heaven for all eternity. It's going to be kind of like a graduation ceremony at a high school. Some people get A's. Some people get B's. Some people get C's. Some people get D's. But everybody's just thrilled to be graduated from high school. So it is with heaven. Will we still be married in heaven? Don't think so. I don't think so. Death breaks the bondage of, or the bond of marriage. I was about to say bondage of marriage. No, it's, I didn't mean that. In any event, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. You know, we're going to be married to the Lamb of God, so it's going to be a better marriage. I don't think that you're going to have any sense of deprivation, but I know my wife Carrie's going to be my best friend up there. I'm pretty sure about that. Will my dead pet be in heaven? Boy, I get asked this all the time, folks. Let me just tell you. I know this is a loaded question. Let me just tell you what, I, what I've come up with on this. Some theologians say absolutely not. Others surprisingly say yes. R.C. Sproul says, There's nothing in Scripture I know of that would preclude the possibility of animals' continued existence. The Bible does give us some reason to hope that departed animals will be restored. We read in the Bible that redemption is a cosmic matter. The whole creation is destined to be redeemed through the work of Christ. Now here's the verse. It's Romans 8.21. And Romans 8.21 says, The creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from decay and death. The question is, what is the creation? Is that just humans? Is that just the earth and the universe? Does it possibly include the animal kingdom? There are those who think so. And if that is the possibility, then yeah, you may actually see your dead pet in heaven. Mark Hitchcock, a prophecy scholar, and C.S. Lewis agree on that. What are some things that won't be in heaven? Well, there's not going to be any sea there. Yep, No sea. That brings back memories of Noah's flood. There's no death in heaven. That's the last enemy that will be forever gone, never again to raise its ugly head. No pain in heaven. Heaven's going to be an utterly pain-free existence. And so no need for Tylenol or Advil or any of those. No pain whatsoever. There's not going to be any crying or mourning or tears in heaven. Only endless joy. We will no longer have mortal bodies that need recuperation through sleep. Resurrection bodies will never become fatigued. There's other things that won't be in heaven. There's not going to be any satanic opposition there. That means he's not going to tempt us anymore. No longer will he afflict us with bodily ailments. No longer will he give us seeds of doubt. 
Satan and demons will be in eternal quarantine in heaven. What are some things we won't experience? We will never sin, never make mistakes, never need to confess, never have to repair or replace things like leaky faucets, never have to defend ourselves, never experience guilt, never experience rehabilitation, never experience loneliness, never experience depression or fatigue or alienation. Does that sound good so far? I think so. The absence of all these negative things will contribute to our sense of well-being. The bottom line is this. Heaven involves the eternal presence of everything that can make a saint happy, as well as the eternal absence of everything that can cause sorrow and pain in life. Notice also the contrast between Genesis and Revelation. In Genesis, the heaven and the earth were created. In Revelation, the heaven and the earth are renewed. In Genesis, the sun was created. In Revelation, there's no need of the sun. In Genesis, the night is established, but in Revelation, there's no night there in heaven. The seas were created in Genesis, but in Revelation, in heaven, there is no more seas. In Genesis, the curse enters the world, but according to Revelation 22, there's no more curse. Death enters the world in Genesis, but there's no more death in heaven. In Genesis, humanity is cast out of paradise, but in heaven, we regain paradise. In Genesis, there's sorrow and pain beginning, but in heaven... Sorrow, tears, and pain end. So what does this all mean to us? I'm going to close right now, and let me just tell you what it means on a practical level for the way that we live. Everything that we desire is in heaven. Our Father is there. Our Savior and Comforter are there. Our Christian loved ones who have died are there. Our names are recorded there, Philippians 4.3. We are citizens there, Philippians 3.20. Our inheritance awaits us there, 1 Peter 1, 4. Our reward is there, Matthew 5, 12. Our true treasure is there, Matthew 19, 21. You and I are strangers and exiles on this earth, making our way to the heavenly country. That is why we need to have an eternal perspective. Like Colossians 3 says, it says, Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. This is intense in the Greek. Diligently focus on things above. And it's a present tense. 24-7, continue to seek the things above. This ought to be our default attitude as we live as Christians on earth. We should redeem the time. Teach us to number our days, O Lord, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Show me, O Lord, my life's end and the number of my days and let me know how fleeting is my life. The more we're aware of our mortality the more we will focus on the things of heaven. I close with Herman Lang. We need a perspective just like his. He was a young German preacher who stood among the Christians who spoke out against Adolf Hitler's repression of the gospel. He was arrested, interrogated, and tried as a criminal. And on the last day of his life, before he was put to death, he wrote a farewell letter to his parents. And it goes this way. When this letter comes to your hands, I shall no longer be among the living. The thing that has occupied our thoughts constantly for many months, never leaving them free, is now about to happen. He was about to be executed. If you ask me what state I am in, I can only answer. I am first in a joyous mood, and second filled with great anticipation. As regards the first feeling, today means the end of all suffering and all earthly sorrow for me. And God will wipe away every tear from my eyes. What consolation, what marvelous strength emanates from faith in Christ who has preceded us in death. In him I have put my faith and precisely today I have faith in him more firmly than ever. 
And as to the second feeling of anticipation, this day brings the greatest hour of my life. Everything that till now I have done and struggled for and accomplished has at bottom been directed to this one goal of entering heaven, whose barrier I shall penetrate today. And I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Until we meet again in the presence of the Father of lights, your joyful Herman. God bless you. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. This concludes our study on the wonder of heaven. If you find this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. Log on to our website at evidenceandanswers.org. We have a wide variety of resources available to you. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, click on the Donate button on the lower right-hand side of our homepage. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions for more than 20 years. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us here next week on the air or online for more evidence and answers.